You're listening to the Complete Performance Systems Podcast, where we cover how to get really strong, increase sports performance, training, nutrition, rehab, and lifestyle. Hey guys, welcome to the Complete Performance Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Hackmackey, and I have here with me on episode 16, Dr. Rory Alter. In this episode, Rory talks about her background in powerlifting and physical therapy. Rory covers the anatomical variation in determining belt sizes for powerlifters, the different mechanisms for latching belts, how tight to wear a belt, the Valsava maneuver, incontinence in female powerlifters, prevalence of incontinence in males, strengthening the pelvic floor, and progressive overload. The Complete Performance Systems Podcast is sponsored by Boomerang Energy. Get your real good energy back with Boomerang, the natural energy drink. All right, Rory, do you want to tell the listeners and viewers a little bit about you and your background? Sure. I am first and foremost a person because we always like to define ourselves by our job title or powerlifting or whatever, but I'm a dog mom, wife, sister, daughter, all those things. And I am a physical therapist. I've been practicing since 2012 and I am a competitive powerlifter. Uh, I've competed both internationally and nationally. So I compete in USA powerlifting and have competed on the national team at bench press world championships twice. And I own um, a physical therapy practice that works both in person and remotely. So we do coaching, rehab coaching for barbell athletes of any level. How I came across you is my wife actually attended one of your conferences um, and that really sparked my interest with your background in physical therapy and powerlifting. But she mentioned um, you were kind of lecturing on some, I guess, things that are against the social norm in the powerlifting realm. Um, and one of the biggest things was the uh, belts and powerlifters. Do you want to kind of talk about the anatomical variation in determining like belt sizing in athletes? Sure. So um, commercially uh, and like most available belts, so like every company that you buy a belt from, their standard size for the belt is four inches wide. So width is from the like from your hip to your rib cage that would be the width and then the allowable thickness in competition according to most standard federation rules is 10 to 13 millimeters thick so like how thick the belt looks when you hold it on its side so most people regardless of their shape or size will default to buying a four inch belt because that's what's most available. That's usually what's in stock. That's usually stock availability. Um, and a lot of companies only recently started producing a three inch belt. Many companies have like two to uh, like two inch belts and tapered belts that are two inches in the front, four inches in the back. And those two inch belts are marketed as bench belts, so bench press belts. But when we look at it, when we look at competitions at large and we look at the female population, 
the very, very small, like 47 kilo female lifters all the way up to the 120 plus men, we see this standard belt across all categories. But that's not going to be the best thing because it can be too thick, it can be too wide, you might not be able to get it tight enough relative to your body, or the belt might actually be interfering with you getting in the right position. So there's not only thickness and width, but there's also the type of closure that the belt has. So prong, single prong, double prong, and lever. And that will determine how easy it is to one, close, and two, how easy it is to adapt to fluctuations in your size, in your waist circumference within a training session. So like maybe you were a little dehydrated when you started, and then you, you drink a lot while you're training, your gut gets a little bit wider, it's harder to get your belt closed. So you need the belt to accommodate changes in size, or maybe even lifts, like some people wear their, lift, their belt tighter for one lift and looser for another lift, right? So we want to find a belt that fits us appropriately. So what we're looking for is the belt to fit in on top of, so if you took your hands and you put them on your hip bones from the side, and then you come up to the top of the hip bone and push in, you want your belt to sit on the inside of your hip bone. So you don't want it to come over and encapsulate your hip bone, you want it to be just above so that it can cinch your waist. And then in, in terms of where it comes up to on, on the top of the, the belt, if you feel for your rib cage, you can feel that your ribs start to taper in at the bottom. You don't want the belt to come higher than the taper in your ribs. So for some people, a four inch belt might sit over their hip bones and over their rib cage, in which case you can't effectively get the belt tight enough so that it's not moving while you lift. So you want to find a belt that fits you tight enough so that when you are moving throughout the lift, you don't see the back of the belt moving up and down your back or the front of the belt isn't moving in front of your body. And the reason we don't want the belt to move is, especially when, it, when we're talking about females with incontinence, when the belt moves, it can change the pressure on the bladder while you're moving throughout the lift. So if that belt moves and then pushes on the bladder, you might experience leakage. But the same thing goes with anyone using a belt. We want it to be tight enough so that it's giving our muscles feedback to contract tighter or more, uh, more strongly. So the belt doesn't give you support. It's not additional support. What it's doing is when you put the belt on, it's giving feedback to your muscles so that they can contract stronger or harder. So did that make sense? I hope I explained that well. So like small female, the general rule of thumb is that smaller females should default to a three inch belt. Um, and people who have shorter torsos will probably do better with a three-inch belt. People who are taller and have longer torsos can get away with a four-inch belt. But then in terms of, well, so that's just in terms of three versus four or two and a half or whatever. But then when we're talking about thickness, um, generally speaking, um, thicker belts will get in the way more. So if you're talking about someone who maybe has a like a large waist so they have like they may have extra body fat um when they try and get into the bottom position of the deadlift the belt can get in the way so having a thicker belt 
um, or one that you can't get tight enough might cause crowding in the bottom of the squat or the deadlift. So sometimes um, if you just get a thinner belt or a tighter belt, um, it might be helpful for you. So then we can also, I mean, there's so many things to talk about for the belts. We can also talk about the closure. So like I mentioned, there's prong, single prong and double prong and then lever. With lever, it's gonna be more flush. So if anyone is ex experiencing trouble with crowding with their belt, they might wanna first try going from a 13 millimeter to a 10 millimeter, but if they're already using a 10 millimeter and still experiencing crowding in the front of their belt and, it, and they know that it's tight enough, they might benefit from one, turning the, the prong to the back or to the side, or experimenting with a lever belt because it's gonna be more flush so there's less material in the front, which leads to less crowding. The downside to a lever belt is that it's not very easy to adjust the belt to weight, uh, waist fluctuation. So you need to usually carry um, like a, screw, a screwdriver so that you can adjust the belt. Now, SBD, which is this great company, very popular company, has this like fantastic lever design on their belt, which makes it very, very easy to accommodate for changes in waist fluctuation. But the problem is, is that they only have one belt and it's four inches and 13 millimeters. So it's the thickest and widest belt, which isn't going to be the best size for everyone. So you know, we, there's give and take for all the components that go into a belt that you choose. Now, when we're talking about choosing um, which type of prong closure you want, typically people struggle, especially when they're trying to get their belt as tight as they can. If you have a double prong, it's oftentimes hard to get both prongs into their holes. It takes a little bit longer, so people kind of tend to get frustrated with double prong, so I usually just recommend a single prong. Um, I don't really know if there's any like physical reason why double prong, I don't think it's like superior, like you need two prongs in a belt. Um, so I think I kind of covered it. So you want to look at width based on your height, um, your torso length, and your body size. You want to look at width based on how much crowding you're experiencing, and also width so, uh, sorry, the thickness based on how much crowding you're experiencing and, and having a thicker belt can also make it harder to close. Like they they tend to be stiffer. So you can't usually get the thicker belts as tight as the, like a 13 millimeter. You usually can't get as tight as a 10 millimeter. Then you want to look at, um, the, the closure type. So what, do you have crowding? Do you want to decrease the crowding or you don't have a problem with crowding and um, how easy it is for you to adapt the belt to fluctuations in your waist? So if a common issue is uh, getting belt bite when training, whether it's on your hips or um, lower abdomen, uh, what's your best recommendation for that? Is that decreasing the width or so there's a couple reasons why you could be getting belt bite. Um, it's not atypical or abnormal to get belt bite when you first start using a belt. Um, your skin is still getting adapted to having something there when you're moving. And anytime we move, like even though I say we don't want the belt to move, it doesn't matter. It's going to move a little bit. So there's going to be friction. Now, if you're getting pinching, so if your belt bite is in 
in response to the belt pinching you, then it might be that the belt is not tight enough or it's too thick uh, or it's too wide. So we wanna, wanna see where is it sitting on relative to your hip bones and your rib cage. We wanna see, are you using a 13 millimeter or 10, meter, 10, 10 millimeter? So does switching from a 13 millimeter to a 10 millimeter decrease the amount of skin irritation that you're getting or bruising that you're getting? Or is it that it's too, too loose? And if it's too loose, we have to figure out how we can get it tighter. Is it too loose because the belt is too stiff? Is it too loose because it's, it's the lever belt and you just have it on this hole for your deadlift and that's what you need on your deadlift but not your squat? Um, or is it too uh, t moving too much or too loose because you just don't know that it's too loose? So we want to look at all those things. Do you have any guideline recommendations on um, cranking down your belt uh, to a certain level, of, I guess, of tightness? Uh, do you want to go as like as tight as you can get or is there a general guideline for following that? Yeah, that's a great question. So generally speaking, uh, and this, this, we kind of see this one in novices. If you don't undo your belt or don't feel the need to undo your belt after you finish the set, then it's too loose for sure. Um, typically when you stick your hand in the back of your belt, like where your spine is, you should not, if you can get your whole hand back there, it's definitely too loose. You maybe wanna be able to get two fingers or one finger, but I think if you have three or more fingers in the back of your belt, then it's definitely too loose. We also can check it by looking at how much movement we see uh, when you're moving throughout the lift, whether it's squatting down. So when we squat down, if the belt is too loose, we'll see it rise up on the back as you approach the hole. And if it's too loose in the deadlift, we'll see that when you get into the start position, it also moves up on your back. So if we see any movement, that can also be an indicator that it's too loose. Um, in terms of how tight it should be, it shouldn't cause pain. Um, and it shouldn't inhibit your ability to get into position for the lift. So, but you should want to take it off as soon as you finish the lift. So overly tight is not always better, but loose is not good as well. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, another um, thing in the powerlifting realm, I would say, is kind of accepted as a social norm is incontinence and female bracing. Do you want to go over um, just helping them understand is this normal and then the background on what they can do for it? Sure. So typically when we see women um, experience incontinence when they're lifting, it's usually on the squat and the deadlift. Um, and we actually conducted a study at Adelphi University looking at high-level competitive female powerlifters who – didn't uh, have any risk factors for urinary incontinence outside of training, and the prevalence was 74.5% experience some type of urinary incontinence when they're training or, or lifting. Now, when we look at normal incontinence, I say normal, incontinence outside of powerlifting, it's not normal. If you experience incontinence in any capacity, it's not normal, and it's something that either uh, I can help you with or a physical therapist of any kind can help you with as long as they know about how to manage it. 
So incontinence is the involuntary leakage of urine. There's many different kinds of incontinence. So there's stress incontinence. That's usually the type of incontinence that you hear when people are like, they run, jump, sneeze, laugh, cough, um, double under, you know, like that kind of just extra general exercise incontinence. That's stressed urinary incontinence. There's urge incontinence is when is when you have the very strong urge to go to the bathroom and you can't control it or get to a bathroom in time. There's mixed, which is a combination of both. There's functional incontinence, which we usually see in the older population who has arthritis in their hands or they can't walk fast enough or they're confined to a wheelchair or they've had some type of neurological event like a stroke or a spinal cord injury where they just like can't control it. Uh, so that's functional incontinence. And then we have athletic incontinence. And athletic incontinence is broken down into the female who experiences incontinence only in their sport. And every type of athletic incontinence has its own mechanism. So mechanism means what is happening in their sport that is leading to them experiencing incontinence. So outside of athletic incontinence, the risk factors for experiencing any type of incontinence is age, body habitus, parity, which means how many pregnancies have you had, how many deliveries have you had, what type of delivery that you've had, if you've had any abdominal surgeries, any pelvic surgeries, if you have any comorbidities that lead to or can change or influence your pelvic floor, your renal system, your, renal system, uh, your bladder, your urethra, whatever. So those are risks as smoking is a risk factor. So those are risk factors that the general population who experiences incontinence has. So when I say, so menopause is also one. So when we look at just female powerlifters and we wanted to really study like why is it happening in female powerlifters, we wanted to take out the risk factor, risk factor population. So we looked at women who were between the ages of 18, 30, 18 and 35 and didn't have any risk factors. So they didn't smoke. They've not had any kids. They're not close to menopause. They don't have any comorbidities or any. They don't experience incontinence outside of lifting. And in that population, who has zero risk factors, doesn't have it outside of powerlifting, outside of training, and is between the ages of 18 and 35, 74.5% of the women that we looked at have some type of incontinence. So while it's prevalent, it's still not normal. Okay. And the reason that it's happening in training or in powerlifting is, is multifactorial. So there's three realms that we're looking at when we're looking at powerlifting urinary incontinence. And the three realms, so the reason we're looking at these three realms is because they don't have any risk factors, with, which means that there's no pathology in the pelvic floor itself or in the continent system. So it's not a primary problem of the pelvic floor, okay? So in this type of population, doing Kegels or doing biofeedback is not the answer to, to solving the problem. The answer lies in these three realms. We wanna look at your programming to understand what type of fatigue is accumulating in your programming. When are you experiencing the symptoms? Is it occurring at 
do, do what type of training do you do? So is it RPE based? Is it percent based? Or is your coach assigning you numbers and not really accounting for what's going on in your life that day? So we want to look at, is it happening above a certain percentage or above a certain RPE, rate of perceived exertion? Is it happening on low volume sets, high volume sets? And this can give us um, an indication on, is it related to muscular fatigue, right? And then we also want to look at, <clears throat> excuse me, um, other things in training. Is it just on a particular lift? Is it just at a particular point in your training cycle? Okay, so if at the start of the block, is everything okay? And then as you come to the end of the block, when fatigue is high, are you starting to get your symptoms? So is it on all types of squats, front squats, high bar squats, safety squats, and your competition squat or just your competition squat? Um, so that's the first realm, which is programming. The second realm is going to be the mechanical realm. And the mechanical realm is kind of twofold. One is technique. So we're looking at change in position under moving load. And this, and this is not like, is your technique right? Because everyone's going to have different techniques. All coaches teach technique differently. But what we're looking at is repeatability across sets and form breakdown, right? So change in position under moving load. And one of those things is backgrounding, specifically lumbar spine flexion while you're moving. Because lumbar, lumbar spine flexion is going to influence the, the position or the position and the contents of the pelvic floor. And your bladder is in your pelvic floor. So typically we see, you know, as someone is approaching the bottom of the squat and they bounce and they might get a little bit of backgrounding, um, they, they leak. Or they're coming out of the the hole and they're at their sticking point and they start to get a little backgrounding because they're fighting through the sticking point and that's where they leak. Um, the other thing, the other two things that fall under mechanic, uh, mechanical are your belt. So we just talked extensively about belt use. So you couple a belt that's moving, which is considered change in position under moving load. You couple that with your back starting to round. That really changes the pressure in your pelvic floor. Um, so, and then you couple that with a bulky belt, right? So that's all weird things going on there. You also want to look at, do you experience the symptoms without your belt? And do you only experience them with your belt on? Maybe you need to address how you're using your belt, what size your belt is, etc. Another thing in mechanical, oh, there's two more things in mechanical, I, there's four. The other thing in mechanical that I wanted to talk about is general um, physiological things that can happen. So constipation or gas loading from your menstrual cycle or just gas bloating, that kind of thing. So all that takes up extra space in your pelvic cavity. So if those things are present, they might change the position of your the contents of your pelvic cavity on that particular day, which changes how the pressure distributes and what happens to your bladder. And then the last thing is if the person is doing, excuse me, if they are doing the Valsalva maneuver correctly or incorrectly. And so this is related to bracing. So typically what happens is 
Um, the way that the Valsalva maneuver or bracing should happen is you take a big breath in and you hold it before you start moving and you hold it until you finish moving and then you exhale. But, and it has nothing to do with pushing your belly into your belt or big air or use your belt, not, not that, okay? We were born knowing how to breathe. When we, let me ask you this question. When you, the last time or the first time you ever helped someone move a couch or a heavy box, did someone teach you how to breathe before you did that? No. Right, right? So why are we gonna teach someone how to breathe when they're moving a barbell? You know, it's, it's an innate automatic, I say the Valsalva maneuver, is necessary, automatic, safe, and adaptable. So the three uh, the the big the big things that come up when we say hold your breath, or in the fitness industry and in outside of powerlifting and the physical therapy realm or medical realm, when we say hold your breath, people are like, no, don't hold your breath, you're gonna have a stroke. But so that's why I say safe and adaptable. Okay. Because the Valsalva maneuver is something that is automatic. It, it happens, it, we've been doing it since we were born, okay? And we have to do it to do daily things, like getting, like for so anything that's strenuous in our life, we, have, we do the Valsalva maneuver without even thinking about it. And it's adaptable in that just like we train our muscles to get stronger, our Valsalva maneuver or our Valsalva response is going to also get stronger, right? So it adapts with us. So, um, but it's necessary because we need it to balance out our, our, our vascular system when we're training, and we also need it in order to stabilize our spine, okay, so that we can transfer load. So it's necessary... Like it's automatic. Like we learned, it didn't, we never learned it. It just happens automatically since we were born. It's safe and it's adaptable. So I don't teach anyone how to do the Valsalva maneuver other than say, take a big breath in and hold it. That's it. But you'll have coaches who use balloons to help people learn how to breathe and, or say, push your belly into your belt, which is not what happens. Um, when you use a belt. You don't have to do anything special when you put a belt on. The belt is simply there to increase the muscular contraction of your core musculature. And it does it automatically if it's tight enough. It is something that your muscles feel and can contract stronger against. We don't have to push anything into the belt. It does it. So I've, have you heard of this like 360 breathing? Yep. Yeah, that's not a thing. You don't need to do that. <laughs> All you do is you put your belt on tight enough, you take a big breath in, and you hold it. That's it. Um, so oftentimes, there are people who have been coached to push their belly into their belt. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's say you're a, I don't know if you are or not, but let's say that you are a belly pusher when you put your belt on. Are you? No, I'm not. I feel like when I perform a lift that my belly just naturally you know, fits into the belt. Right. It just naturally, you don't do anything. It just does it. Right. Um, so this is a, this is an interesting thing. And what happens is that we don't push our belly out when we're not using the belt. Right. So people do their warm up sets. They're not pushing their belly into anything. And then 
they put their belt on for the last warm-up and their work sets, they push their belly into their belt, and then they pee because they're using their belt wrong. So what's happening when you push your abdomen out into your belly, there's a drop in your pelvic floor musculature. And that is promoting voiding. So oftentimes if you're doing that belly breathing into your belt thing, you might, you might not always, because not, every, not everybody experiences incontinence, but I've seen this, that if you're doing the pushing, if you change how you're breathing when you put the belt on, it changes the experience of the pelvic floor as well. So that would be a mechanical thing as well. And then the last thing, the last realm is anxiety um, or psychological factors. So what happens is people see or hear about urinary incontinence or peeing when they lift, they get anxious about it, maybe they've experienced it themselves already, so they start to get anxious about it. So they start to withhold water so they don't drink enough. Now what happens is when we don't drink enough, our urine and our bladder becomes concentrated. Concentrated urine excites the bladder. It's a bladder irritant. So it promotes voiding. So oftentimes people withhold drinking water so that they don't pee, but because our bladder will never ever be completely empty, it can't be. We would uh, like implode if our bladders were empty completely empty completely um, because our bladders are never empty completely if the urine is hyper concentrated it increases the um, contractility of the bladder and can promote incontinence when you're lifting also what happens is people start to decrease the amount of urine that their bladder is accustomed to holding so if they're if if you're if your normal sensation to void is when you're this full, but then you're constantly withholding water, then your normal sensation to void is here. So you kind of decrease that threshold, which can promote failure when we're in training. The other thing is anxiety in and of itself can promote increased bladder contractility. So then we also see that girls who experience or are worried about peeing, tend to go to the bathroom to empty just in case multiple times in like a two hour training session. So when it's normal to go maybe seven times a day, they're maybe going four or five times in a training session. So that also can promote the problem as well. So when we start to see these bladder habits, these adaptable, these, these, um, adaptive behaviors develop, we want to see if we can influence those adaptive behaviors so that we can kind of like undo them. So those are the three realms that people in powerlifting, those are the three influences that we want to look at if someone is experiencing incontinence in powerlifting. Is it rarely one thing? It's rarely one thing. Um, it's usually a combination of one or uh, two or more of those things. So we usually have to address more than one thing. But if it's just your belt, that's a really easy fix. I know you mentioned this before and that it's a lot less common in men. So that's why it gets talked about a lot more in women. Do you want to touch on um, if this does happen to men and how often and just addressing that as well? Yeah. So when we look at the prevalence of incontinence in general across all populations, in females, it's 51% on average. In men, it's 14%. So just in general, by being male, you're less 
prone to experiencing this. And there's many reasons why um, men don't have babies. Men don't go through menopause, so their hormones are very different. Um, and the anatomy of the urethra and the pelvic floor is very different. And, and also the anatomy of the pelvis is different. Men don't have a uterus, but men do have prostates, right? So there are so many different factors that go into why men don't experience this as much as women. <laughs> the biggest thing, um, it, I mean, the, 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 the biggest things are that men don't have babies, men don't have the, the same hormones, and also the, the path of the urethra is very different, and it's a much longer urethra. So men will not experience urinary incontinence as much as women do. However, I mean, in powerlifting, but in general as well. However, it is not unheard of for men to crap their pants when they deadlift or squat. Um, and I don't particularly study this as in depth as I do the female urinary incontinence problem, but I would assume that it is a very similar mechanism. It's either form failure, fatigue failure. Um, I would say it's probably, it probably falls into the programming and the mechanical uh, component the realms with not really the anxiety realm contributing as much to this as as the other two in men <clears throat> so when we think of um, if you are experiencing this as a male or female I like to compare it to grip failure right so if you're experiencing this on a regular basis we need to figure out is this your weakest link and how do we adjust training so that we push your weakest link threshold higher and higher and higher and higher so that it's not something that's interfering with training. You bring up uh, strengthening it. I know we covered this a little before, but um, do you want to talk about strengthening the pelvic floor? Yeah. So when we look at just general urinary uh, stress, urinary incontinence in females, the typical physical therapy approach is really for especially for stress urinary incontinence so when we look at like i told you before there's different types of incontinence strength urge functional athletics etc when people look at power powerlifting urinary incontinence it's typically considered stress urinary incontinence and so they'll approach it like uh, treating it like stress urinary incontinence, which is what is going, why is the pelvic floor failing, right? So it's weak, it's tight, there's sugar points. Um, but maybe for someone who has not been, uh, maybe for someone who doesn't exercise, has had three kids and urinates when they cough, it might be a strength thing. But a power lifter who can deadlift 400 pounds is not weak in any of their muscles in their body, including their, their pelvic floor doesn't just decide not to get strong as they're lifting. So the pelvic floor musculature is con considered in the system of your body is considered a stabilizer. So we have movers and stabilizers, typically our spinal erectors, our core musculature, and any joint that is not moving 
or contributing to moving the bar is considered a stabilizer when we're lifting. So our pelvic floor musculature, our stabilizers, even though we can't see them and we can't feel them, they are contracting and contributing to maintaining the core pressure that we develop in our valsalva. <clears throat> so it sh they are getting stronger as you get stronger, but they might be your, they're small muscles, they're thin muscles, and they're not, they're not large muscles. They're not as large as your quads. They're not as large as your glutes. They're not as large as your biceps or your deltoids. They're very, very small muscles. So similar to how our weak, our small muscles fail, like in the deadlift, we tend to be limited by our grip or back extensors the pelvic floor might be our limiting factor. So what we need to do is figure out when it starts to fail, adjust our loads down to slightly below that, and then make sure that we're not experiencing symptoms when we're training. Now I think a lot of people, and I, as, I, I use with all of my clients and my patients, I use rate of perceived exertion in a, in a descriptive fashion. So I might have like someone on a linear periodization type program, linearly progressing or whatever, but they will always give me a rate of perceived exertion for all of their work sets. And the reason is because that's a great indicator of fatigue. We can take the number of reps, the rate of perceived exertion and the load to give us an estimated 1RM and we can track the trend of estimated 1RM over time. And if we see that trend start to dip, we can know that fatigue has, like too much fatigue has accumulated. So that's one way. It's a great internal descriptor of what's going on. And in the literature, internal descriptors of fatigue are much more predictive of injury than external measurements of load. So um, we can get strong training in the 7.5 to 8.5 RPE range. And typically on average, what I recommend is that people train in the like 8 to 8.5 RPE range. Whether, whether that's prescriptive, so using RPE to pick loads for that day or descriptive, tracking what RPEs your loads are. Right, so maybe I say do 225 today, 230 next time, 235, blah 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 blah, and you're telling me, okay, this time each set was an eight, then it was an eight eight nine, right? Then it was an eight nine nine. Now I know on average that third session was like an eight and a half, so maybe I start might want to adjust the program so that the RPE doesn't rise next time. And then that's when it, when we train at too high of, a, of an RPE average for too long, that's when we start to have these things happen. So um, people, if you're training at nines and tens all the time, then we see a lot of form failure and a lot of fatigue accumulating. So what I would recommend is if you are experiencing this, drop the load to where you're not experiencing it and track your RPE. Make sure that you're not accumulating too much fatigue so you're not hitting nines and tens in trading, that you're staying in this 7.5 to 8.5 RPE range and adding just a little bit of weight every time you go into the gym. And that should start to push the threshold of your pelvic floor strength higher and higher and higher over time. Last question here. So progressively, um, you just take this method uh, to lower or raise the threshold over time and 
when does it stop becoming a considering factor of like raising the threshold um when they're done uh having the issue in the long run or very sporadically uh how do you know when to uh, i guess quit with the progressive overload on it well i don't i don't like ever i mean i don't ever program someone to train at like nines and tens on a regular basis in general because when we're looking at how injuries happen um it's it's usually a combination i mean generally speaking when we have form breakdown um that happens at the higher rpes right so nines and tens is where we're going to see the a lot of form breakdown um and fatigue accumulation is is going to be higher in the rp9 and 10 range so i never program someone to train at a 10 ever um, and i use nines very sparingly and i will use nines in exercises that are not competition lifts which means that the low or and that aren't going to be overload movements so i don't think that it ever stops um if 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 i was just working with someone who came to me specifically for urinary incontinence and powerlifting <laughs> i would probably work with them for about 4 to 8 weeks and i would say okay this is what i recommend so that you don't experience your symptoms again um but I, and but i think in general when you're looking at how injuries happen like if you're I would say don't ever train at like, you shouldn't have more than like one nine in a training session on a particular lift um, or I, for lower body lifts. For upper body, your upper body can usually handle a little bit higher intensity, but you shouldn't have more than one or two nines, any over nine in training on a regular basis ever is my recommendation in order to reduce your risk for injury, so. Do you want to give yourself a shout out and tell the listeners where they can find you? Oh, sure. <laughs> you can find me all over the place. I'm on Instagram. It's Rory Megan. So R-O-R-I-M-E-G-A-N underscore PRS. That's my personal account. My business account is at Pro Rehab Strength. You can find me on Facebook. I have a, um, a Facebook community called the Secret Society of Barbell Mastery. Um, in there, we do free form checks every Wednesday and Friday, which is a lot of fun. We answer any questions that you guys have, and we do a live free coaching call the last Monday of every month. Um, and then you can also check me out on my website, which is progressiverehabandstrength.com. And if you are at all interested in these theories that I talk about in terms of risk, uh, injury risk reduction, I teach a whole online programming course. Um, and the whole online technique course. We're currently in the technique course right now, but the programming course, we actually just launched it on demand right now, which is, it's not typically taught on demand. So there is a live component to the course, but full 12 lectures, which is like 18 hours of content is available right now because people are home and bored and want to be educated. <laughs> um, so we just launched that on demand. So if anyone's interested, you can give me shoot me an email and I can send you the link to register for that. But we're launching that again, the whole live course. So the lectures are live, there's live Q and A's, there's exams, 
Um, it's great. You get a, a one-hour coaching call. Um, it's a 12-week course. Um, that's launching in May, hopefully. So, yeah. Thank you for taking the time to be on today, Rory. Of course. No problem. I enjoyed it. The Complete Performance Systems Podcast is sponsored by Boomerang Energy. Get your real good energy back with Boomerang, the natural energy drink.